think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 101 of The Boys in Short Pants, the 102nd episode. We are now beyond the Dalmatian threshold, except for the sequels, which we don't count, because obviously those were very, <laughs> very poor sequels, and frankly, no one is interested in the Dalmatians after a certain point. You know, 101, that's enough, 102? I think you started to talk about too many Dalmatians at that point. Uh, you know, I had a 101 Dalmatian comforter as uh, my primary bed linen for uh, a large chunk of my life. That... Somehow uh, does not surprise me in the slightest. <laughs> so spe- special resonance in my heart for the 101 Dimensions, the original Disney animation. Speaking of things that are for children, uh, we wanted to start off this week. Uh, <laughs> yeah, see, good segue, right? Um, I want to talk about a notable political crossover event uh, that some some might term the most ambitious in history. Uh, Tian, do you want to you lead us into that? Well, I, so given sort of the perfect nexus of my interest, which would be like beer, board games, video games, and Canadian politics, you know, this one firmly captures two of them, um, which is the appearance of Jugmeet Singh on Twitch playing Among Us uh, with several notable streamers. Um, most notably Myth um, of Fortnite fame I've and XQC never of, of Overwatch fame. <laughs> um, and Aok a, a or some Yusa politician that I think we're supposed to be familiar with. This is just going to confuse people again. Like, don't don't the, try to be cute with it. <laughs> people are just going to be confused. <laughs> Um, so along with uh, XQC and Myth and several others, Harambe or I don't know who one of the main Canadian you know instigators of this entire thing was um, was AOC Alexandra Ocasio Cortez, um, the would you call her a junior American Congresswoman? I would actually call her a sophomore American Congresswoman. Sophomore, oh, second term, yes. baby. I think, I don't I don't know these I don't know these. Is it her second term? Yeah, she was first elected in twenty eighteen. I mean, it's not technically her second term yet because that it was a by election. No, or... no, no, no. It's just that she was first elected in twenty eighteen, and her second term has not yet actually started because it starts in January. When the new uh, Congress is sworn in. Yes. Okay. Well, it doesn't count yet because she hasn't been sworn in. I'm, I'm going to call make this her a freshman congresswoman then. On. I don't know these American terms for college years i was just thinking junior senior i i wasn't including well the you, whole you missed gamut. a whole spectrum of uh of options there then yeah there i i go. accept that well fair enough i accept that so at any rate yes um, they, they played some video games <laughs> is what a chance is building up to um well yeah they, so first of all let's let's not let this pop culture moment go uh unrecognized um to my knowledge, it's the first sort of major Canadian politics video game crossover. Um, I can't, I'm trying to think of MPs who game and who our most gamer MP is, and I'm really struggling. I know Brian Massey is a, is a gamer, he games, but he, I think several he MPs plays, have uh... expressed Fortnite. Um, James Moore, uh, all I believe he was, was no, no longer a member of Parliament when you made that discovery. That's though. what I was going to say. Yeah. I believe it was past his uh, p- 
political tenure when he started making uh, posts about Fortnite. Um, Massey is another one who has a few MPs have asked about Fortnite emote dancing and whether or not it's copyright infringement in uh, I believe it was Indu Committee at the time um, but other than that we don't really have any MPs that game and I'm not sure we can consider uh, Jagmeet Singh among them so to, uh, so to as speak I think it was <laughs> a, abundant <laughs> yes as I think it was abundantly clear in the first uh, minute um, that this was maybe a not new his first time playing the game <laughs> but among the first times playing the game so to speak. It, it did not necessarily come naturally to him um, he did seem to, mean, what, to to sharpen his approach in uh, in later later games. Yeah, I, I admit, uh, I confess, I only watched one or two games before I logged on. Well, in fairness, Etienne, it ran for about five hours. So I did it really? It did. It ran till about eleven thirty, like or so. So about four hours, I suppose. But yeah, quite a long That's... time. That's a significant chunk of anyone's time. Tell me about uh, it. Is a a five hour event. Um, when I logged on at the start, I clicked through some of the different streamers to see who had, you know, most of the following is likely American, just to begin with. Um, but to what the viewerships were, and there was actually fairly substantial um, viewership on both AOC and XQC's profile. Um, I believe AOC had almost a hundred thousand people on, and yeah. XQC had um, seventy thousand or something like that. And I want to say by comparison, Jug Meat maybe had like fifteen or twenty. Uh, I might be making that number up. I checked in at um, one point and saw twenty-five, which is, is okay. Yeah, pretty so, pretty good. Like, I, so yeah, yeah, I mean. In Compared political organizing, to what people if you get, get on their on their Facebook Live videos at any given time, yeah, exactly. You'll, you'll tune into like the CBC Facebook Live, and you'll be like one of twenty people watching it. Yeah, so. you know, in a person like a real life event, absent like a really big rally or something, if you get a hundred people in a room for like a political event on like a Tuesday night, you know, that's not bad. I mean, we're just happy we have a hundred, at least a hundred people listening to this on a Tuesday morning. Yeah, so. exactly. That, so that's the same. It's the same. I'm using the same bar for our podcast as we're talking about in terms of streaming numbers. Yeah, so twenty five thousand, you know, and that's counting just his own stream, not counting the other ones, of which there's a mix of American and Canadian, so it becomes hard to kind of bl- take a blended number at some point. Uh, yes. Pretty, pretty big numbers. I mean, it, the stream a couple weeks ago that they did uh aoc did with uh some other folks i i don't remember i saw four hundred thousand as a figure thrown around a lot i don't know if that was just her stream if it, once again that was a blended stream count uh but still you know pretty respectable so i think uh, definitely a lot to be happy about if you're jigmeet singh and and company there uh, yeah i mean it is somewhat of a coup to begin with to uh manage to shoehorn one's way into the sort of popular left-wing media sphere of the united states um so i I think that's certainly a win for the team um at ndp headquarters um you know i I think there are lessons to be learned in terms of uh how they you know what what the format best represents for a politician when when to you know pitch your talking points and when to be focused on the game and i'm not sure he hit quite the right balance on that but if there was ever uh you know, a, a second kick at the can. Uh, I'm sure that could be worked on. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think you you had indicated to me that you felt he he was trying to to talk too much and not concentrating on the game enough. 
Yeah, I mean, Game, gamer that you watch, are, you were like, this is yeah. suboptimal, <laughs> <laughs> terrible strat. People watch streams. People watch streams to see someone play the video game, and so I think that should be, you know, first and foremost. Um, rather than using it first and foremost as an opportunity for political comms. I, I, think, I think it's worth noting as well. should take the backseat. Uh, Among Us is a game that, if, you, if you're bad at it, has a lot of downtime. So, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, agreed. And yes. that's when Which the Which is great. Then you, can, then you can go ahead and, and start pitching. Yeah, and yeah, that's, that's exactly it, when you're dead. So the basic premise of the game is sort of like Secret Hitler or something. A one social of these, deduction uh, game, you could say, in fact. Yes. Along the likes um, of Mafia and Werewolf. Werewolf Lugaru, as I play with my French cousins, uh, usually two to three weeks from now every year, except for not this year. Indeed. Um, Where, you know, one person is, one or two people are killing the other people, and you have to guess who it is based on actions, lies, etc. Yes. Social Um, deduction, I would say. Yes, you you have to deduce. Socially. Via, well, not, not always. Sometimes you just see them come out of the vent and, you know. Sure. visual deduction in that case so that's why i'm not comfortable with the term social deduction it's you know it's just not wide enough not all encompassing enough i see the various types of deduction that can occur in the game um let's leave among us there um we have yet to settle who the most gamer mp is but we can if you are uh, if you are a gamer mp who listens to the show (laughs) please do reach out we will play video games with you like i i can guarantee that up front like we will absolutely do that it sounds fun absolutely anything and i i commit to beating you at it etienne will like read strategy guides for like about 72 hours straight to prepare look up all like look up the meta just like it will be it will be very disheartening for everyone involved you know sometimes you just have the net deck yes that, that's not going to mean anything to no 98 of people so, but here we are let us leave among us behind us as it were no, no um, appreciation I mean, for you, that okay i thought it was pretty good <laughs> you had wanted to bridge to a decidedly less more trouble to bridge bridge to more troubled waters you could say yes yes with uh Go ahead. the government's uh backing away of its march 2021 date for the lifting of all boiled water advisory long-term drinking water advisories i should say in canada on indigenous reserves uh first nations reserves i should say um this is obviously uh, a big disappointment. Um, I mean, it, it's one of those things really where, you know, it is not a small lift, but when you've made a big promise, I think, you know, obviously it would be best if every boil water advisory and drinking water advisory were fixed yesterday. Um, that was not the case. And, and seeing a um, an extension is not good. I think it, I, I would step back a little bit from there because I think there's only so much we can harp on the point that, you know, like the liberals could have done more early, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And like, I, I think all those points have been well made in, in various places. What I want to talk about is is more about the the fact that we have a democracy that in many ways is somewhat contractual in the sense that parties present a platform out of government. Uh, they run on it. People vote on it based on their expectations and part of what you know a party will deliver in its platform and then they come into government and realize that it's actually quite difficult to do what they promise to do and they will often try to a greater or lesser degree to meet that promise and sometimes not depending uh but i i think and i believe we've talked about this before on the show is that 
fundamentally the resource imbalance and mismatch between government and opposition parties is fundamental in a way that I don't think is really appreciated off of the Hill. Um, like even the official opposition, you just don't have access to what the government knows about what is feasible and what is not feasible, or more importantly, what the public service deems to be feasible and not feasible. Can um, I just interject, not to, not to ruin your stream of consciousness, but in addition to that, I think the Canadian government, and this is not a partisan comment over the years, has become a very insular um, and untransparent and very, very opaque. Yes. Um, I think to the it, point where the, the comparison between what is released, you know, on COVID or on really any subject between comparable Commonwealth jurisdictions or the United States, it's always worse in Canada that Canada never has detailed information. It's never forthcoming with, inf uh, with information. The access to information system is sort of irreparably broken. Uh, and so these other tools are just sort of more or less all off the table or incredibly blunt. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I, I was going to, to that, that point that transparency in Canada in general is in a pretty dire state. And I think governance suffers for it and democracy suffers for it because opposition parties are in a position where they, they make promises, you know, in good or in bad faith, but without a clear picture of what the feasibility is often. Uh, and I'm not saying that the, the promise to eliminate boil water vacuum in five years was not feasible. The thing is, is I don't know, <laughs> right? Like, I think that it's, it's very easy for me to say one way or the other, but it, I, I, I wouldn't know because I just don't know what the department knows uh, about the situation, and et cetera. So all that to say that I, I think it's not very good for democracy when high profile promises get made, presumably in good faith, and a government is not able to meet it because it didn't have information that it probably should have had going in. But yeah, that, that's a little separate from the actual issue. I do think it's very, very, very regrettable that this is getting kicked down the road uh, again. Um, and uh, certainly a lot of people uh, are going to suffer for it. So not, not good. So just to step back from the political context, boiled water, boil water advisories are always something that, that have sort of fascinated me from the policy perspective. Because I've never, I mean, maybe this is out there and I just haven't seen the reporting on it, but I've just never been aware as to what the bottleneck is in terms of resolving these. Because it seems like such a basic infrastructure problem um, yes. of, you know, going to the community. I get it. It's often rural and remote um, and bringing a construction crew who is equipped to rectify the situation, yeah. fix the water treatment plant, replace the pipes, whatever it is. It's kind of one of those situations seemed... where if, if you want a loaf of bread first, you have to invent agriculture, right? In the sense that there's just decades and I would say centuries of, of neglect and systemic sort of um, underfunding, etc. that have just really, really decimated both administrative capacity, uh, resources, uh, made, you know, entrenched certain governance aspects in the the sort of indian act system through indigenous services and its predecessor that um make it very hard to fix the problems because they're just so compounded over time there's a, but I, each single one is unique right but it's in some ways the, the problems tend to rhyme even if they're they're not the same so no it's it's regrettable but yes uh it is a a long process to to sort of build the the capacity that that needs to kind of get built for the problems to be solved fair enough yeah it's it's tough uh so that takes us to uh the fall economic statement 
which uh, was tabled, tabled Monday. Uh, the I guess it would have been what date was that? Let me, let me look at the old calendar here. It was actually November the thirtieth, so they did keep to their promise of a November uh, fiscal update. Uh, <laughs> very <laughs> by the, barely by the skin of their yep. teeth. Um, fair enough. Uh, and uh, yeah, I would say that landed to a pretty muted reaction. I think it's probably fair to say. So my starting point is, you know, where where does it land on the spectrum of a pure document that consists of charts um, versus a mini budget? And, you know, I think there had been some fluctuation in terms of people's expectations. I think it landed more on the side of mini budget, yes. uh, of a mini budget rather. It included a fair amount of new spending items. Um, all largely in the context of COVID relief um, yes. or you know emergency uh, emergency spending to address COVID. Um, whereas the Build Back Better um, agenda seems to really have been pushed entirely to the spring spring winter twenty twenty one budget. Yes. Um, the main criticism of it seemed to be that it hinted at a lot of spending to come and a lot of programs, a lot of program well, it, yes, de- it, it, notably, details and design it baked that in weren't like sixty to a hundred billion dollars in a fiscal framework without details attached, which is admittedly a lot of money <laughs> to not really have so, any details on. I don't know the finance side of this well enough to know if there was any sort of reason that it had to be baked in at this point, but it strikes me as a little unusual. Um, perhaps only to be more honest in their accounting of finances to come. Yeah, I suspect um, it might be it, that they it, don't want to take the hit <laughs> twice for, for spending a lot of money, right? Like that they're like, well, let's just bake it in now and then we can announce the details when we, we have them and that way we don't get hit on the spending. That may be the calculation. I don't know. Yeah, that, that's what I don't have a good explanation for. It just seems weird um, as a complete outsider to this to say, let's tell people we're going to spend you know, $100 billion, uh, not tell them what it's for, spend it over three to four years, and then we'll fill in the blanks later, but let's announce it in the yes. 2020 fall economic statement. Though, it strikes me as unusual. It, I mean, I think that what you would be worried about in that context is taking a lot of heat for the fall economic statement. I would say that if their view was a cynical one, that they would write out the storm, that view has probably been borne out because I think we are basically already not really talking about the fall economic statement anymore. Um, the, I mean, to be fair, it is, it, you know, we're in the winter holidays in the next two weeks or so. Parliament rises at the end of this week. If they were going to say pain now and reap the rewards later, this was a pretty strategic time to time the pain. I don't know that there has been that much pain. But that's what I'm saying is that, it, you know, like even had there been, it would be, probably mercifully over for them but i think the like last week and we'll, we'll come back to this uh last week the focus was really more on vaccines their procurement and deployment than anything yes any any amount of money the government had announced so yeah i i think that's right i think uh the the fall economic statement rather uh, got papered over reasonably quickly. I don't think I would qualify it as either a political win or a political loss on behalf of the government. I think it was sort of came out as neutral and everyone collectively moved on to the somewhat 
fantastical news about vaccines being rolled out by yes. end of December. So we will, um, we various, will come back in various jurisdictions. Indeed. Uh, the other yes, thing we I can was... come back to vaccines uh, towards the end of the episode. The other thing I wanted to say about the fiscal or follow-up statement is that uh, there was the, the usual wailing and gnashing of teeth about the red ink. Um, and I think, you know, I, I always say this. It's to me, like, the, the magnitude obviously is important to some extent. It's a lot less important than many people think it is. It's the direction that counts. Uh, and I think there was a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth over the magnitude for no real reason. And, and I want to talk about this briefly. Um, the debt service charges, which is to say the actual real cost that we are paying for debt, uh, is, I believe, lower this year than it was last year, which is not what you would expect in a year where you take on a quarter trillion dollars of additional federal <laughs> government debt. Uh, so I think that when you when someone says, hey, would you like a quarter billion dollars? And by the way, this won't cost you any more than what you were paying for the debt you already have. You would be an idiot to say no, because you can presumably use that money to better effect uh, and repay your debt more easily. And this is accepting, of course, the household as as analogy here, which is not something I usually do. But for the purposes <laughs> of this, let's take let's take that as a given and, and just think like, you know, if you put all that in some index funds, you're laughing, right? Like you, you are out on top massively. Um, and when you're the federal government, you actually get to shape the market a bit more than you do as an individual investor. And, you know, it starts to, you can make some good returns. The other thing I want to note about it is that I don't think this necessarily absolves a government from making wise choices about how it spends its money. In fact, I think... Val- value for money yes. doesn't matter how, how expensive the money is. Or I, I think how it does matter, but it's, for... it's less important. Well, no, important. value for money is yes. all, value for money is consideration. Is the important thing here. Assume every dollar is your last and, and spend it accordingly, I think, is, is a reasonable perspective, at least from the point of view of management, if not actual fiscal policy. The other thing is that, you know, they say, oh, well, what if the interest rates go up? And I saw some very good reporting on this over the last week that basically it's it's a really amusing chart taking basically this I, the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, uh, and the and a bunch of private sector bank estimates of, of interest rates. And it's basically a line going consistently down with a bunch of like colored lines going up every year that are the estimates and the, the line going down is the actual real interest rates. So it's just consistently an overrated fear that never actually seems to bear out. And perhaps that should be reflected in, in, in fear mongering about, about budgetary uh, panic. So l- let me bring in my side of this. Um, first, I would note uh, a blog piece by uh, Mike Moffat. Um, Which I think I, I, who I believe wrote about this in one of these. Yeah, did you read it? That, that's what I'm referencing. Yes. That's what I'm going to I saw other, I, don't know if I saw other reporting, but I did read it as well, yes. Okay. Um, so this might be mischaracterizing it. I don't intend to mischaracterize this piece. The way it read to me was when you go to buy a house, which I can now uh, <laughs> speak to um, as a homeowner, um, you have a decision to make in regards to how you're going to finance your mortgage. Um, Not only the institution you're gonna go through, but perhaps more importantly, um, whether or not you're going to go for a variable rate mortgage or a fixed interest mortgage, uh, or a fixed rate mortgage. Ah, the the insurance approach, yes. Um, And so 
Moffat in his piece talks about the pundit class. I actually don't know who specifically he was referencing, um, but the the pundit class um, it was Andrew questioning <laughs> <laughs> questioning the government's um, structuring of its debt in terms of short term yes. versus long term debt, and the question as to whether or not interest rates would rise and make the short term structuring of debt which generally has a lower interest rate, but you're not clear on what the interest yeah, rate you're, is you're not this, as hedged, this is the trade-off, Yes, you're not right? as hedged against a future rise, which, uh, yes. and, and everyone is very worried about a future rise, though I think, as Mike argued in his piece, there's historically not a lot of reason to be worried about that in our situation. And so, bringing it back to my home homeowner example, um, I read yesterday that the lowest mortgage rate in Canada is 0.99% dope um which is uh stunningly low um of course it's on a a cmhc insured mortgage blah 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 um but when i made the decision to go fixed or variable i had to you know weigh weigh two factors my risk tolerance um as well as my prediction of where i thought things were going to go and at the time uh, all things being equal, I made a decision to go with a fixed interest rate mortgage. And God, do I ever feel stupid now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because interest rates are substantially lower um, than what I locked myself into on just over a year and a half ago. Um, so I, I don't know what the lesson here is. Um it, it maybe I think is it's that, that... that interest rates are not as volatile as as both private sector banks and public sector budgetary budgets bodies excuse me seem to assume they are and despite being wrong for about 20 consecutive years yeah if, if i had the choice <laughs> again i think i would flip to variable in a heartbeat um and have you know no regrets um, because I, I don't see, you know, especially in a five-year term of a mortgage. This is now a personal um, finance podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just don't see interest rates going up to three, four percent, whatever it is. Like a, a rapid escalation of rates that yeah. would merit going fixed. Um, so anyways, that, that that's my sort of mental connection between the, the finances of the country yes. and the finances of my mortgage. Um, which again, as as we've talked about in the past, household uh, financing is not the same. Yes, as, you have to you have um, to but, think of like, what if I were getting a mortgage, but I was an immortal, deathless sorcerer who would live forever and have no real rollover risk because I could <laughs> I could summon gold coins from the the elemental realm of gold. But um, insofar as we're talking about long versus short term bonds yes. and long versus short term mortgages, I think the parallels are sufficiently there. There you go. Um, See, well, this is to, this is why you've got so much mileage out of householder analogies, is because they work at a superficial level. Indeed. Yes, but if they would work better if people imagined that they were in fact the the Slavic folktale antagonist Koshe the Deathless, an immortal <laughs> wizard. <laughs> what a great name! <laughs> no, it's legitimately he's like a folktale guy. He's like the Baba Yaga, but uh, but of warlocks. I will take your word for it. There you go. Uh, the other thing we want to talk about, uh, well, one of them, we have a couple other things on, on the docket here, but uh, is a little a little uh, HR uh, issue at the, the top of the public service. Opportunity. Indeed. 
Um, so, Paul Rochon has been Deputy Minister of Finance for the last five years. Um, Deputy Ministers, as I, I think I don't really need to tell listeners of this podcast, are the number two in every department in our senior civil servants, uh, typically people who have been uh, have risen to the top of, of the, the public service game over relatively long careers. Um, and this is like, you know, you go out a deputy minister, you're going out a king. It's pretty good. You get buried with your policy analysts in the afterlife, uh, in your pyramid in Ottawa. It's a very, very good deal. That's definitely how you want to go. Uh, but Paul Rochon announced the day after the fiscal update that he uh, was, was going to retire. Uh, and this, this led to much speculation that he was so horrified by the debt, which I, I think is probably a little silly. Uh, that said, th- this, of course, led to a, a need for uh, a replacement at the number two spot in finance. There was much speculation about uh, Carolyn Wilkins until recently uh, a deputy governor of the Bank of Canada. Uh, senior deputy governor. Senior deputy Bank governor, right. Being slotted in uh, as the new uh, deputy minister of finance. So people I, uh, who whom we trust about finance issues, uh, who shall remain nameless, told us 100%. Our, our, our finance stig, if you will. 100% odds she was going to get the nod. So uh, you you know who you are. Enjoy your croissant. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, no, this no, it's fine. It's really no big deal. This is the left field pick for everyone. We're not blaming you. Uh, but yes, announced so, in, in let, her let stead. Just, let me just start by saying I'm happy we didn't record yesterday because I would have... Uh, we would have had a colossal bet, amount of egg on our face. <laughs> as, as well on Wilkins as the very obvious choice. Um, to back this up a little bit... Wilkins was one of the favorites on, you know, a short list of two people to become the governor of the Bank of Canada. Yes. So she, that's two um, two snubs in like three months. <laughs> yeah. Tough, tough life. At the time, the story seemed to be that she was the pick of PMO, um, and but not the pick of Morneau. And so Morneau ultimately in charge of the appointment, sort of. Um, got his way and Tellier went to uh, the governorship and she is set to not retire but her uh, her position expires very shortly um, so it seemed like this perfect beautiful synergistic fit for Wilkins to go from senior governor Bank of Canada to deputy minister of finance you have uh, a female deputy minister complimenting a female um, minister of finance complete you know yeah there was a reason everyone un- thought this was gonna happen in Ottawa. <laughs> it, it's she and it you know if yeah. it's liberal brand blah 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 it didn't happen ultimately and it was it was actually pretty stunning um yeah no there, there, there was a reason everyone thought this was going to happen but instead uh the person who was announced to become the new deputy minister of finance was one of the 15 people on this government's Rolodex. Michael Sabia, take a bow. He's not here. Can I just can I just correct myself? I said Tellier for some reason instead of Tiff Macklem. Yes, um, I as, was wondering about that. that he, oh, because he I, was... he Yeah, so the, the Paul Tellier background is he was uh, yes. clerk of the Privy Council when Michael Sabia was in yes. the Privy Council office. Yes. Correct. I, I mean, wires office. crossed there. Back in like the 80s. I was, uh, a while ago. I was working my way to the Tellier reference. So Michael Sabia, uh, uh, his recent his recent CV is that he is the C. No, he's not the CEO. He's the the president of the Infrastructure Banks Board. 
uh, chair, I think is yes. is the the technical. Sure. He's he's the chair of the board, um, which I think typically is a part time gig. Um, but for he was appointed in April of this year. For the vast majority of his tenure, there wasn't a president uh, or a CEO. I guess it'd be a CEO. It would be a CEO of yes. the Infrastructure Bank. Uh, the CEO, whose name is eluding me, uh, his former uh, counterpart in Ontario, um, just came over in the last month or two. Like Time sort of very flies. recently, yeah. Um, so Sabia was sort of running the show at the Canadian Infrastructure Bank f- between April and I want to say October. Not a long time. Yet. Um, at which point the infrastructure bank sort of was going through an internal reset. Um, they came out with sort of, I don't know what they called uh, their the vision new, plan. Well, it was the new investing in Canada infrastructure or investing in infrastructure Canada plan, uh, a relatively large plan. And let me just look up the uh, actual value of it. Uh, I should know this $12 billion. Uh, 15 billion yeah that sounds correct to me um yeah if i'm not mistaken it's about it was it's supposed to be just under 35 billion i'm sorry 35 no that's that's wrong that's the overall capitalization or that's the overall capitalization of the bank uh okay i found the growth plan 10 billion 12 10 i'm seeing 10 2.5 for clean power 2 billion to connect uh, approximately three quarter million homes 2 billion for retrofits 1.5 for irrigation 1.5 for zero emission buses and charging infrastructure that's the one i was thinking of so there you go uh yes i I mean that was the and 500 million actually for future planning there is also on that list um so under sabia's watch cib spearheaded through this plan got approved got it out the door um, not a ton of announcements were made in terms of actual as attachments to project. It seems like that's always in the works. Anytime you ask anyone about it, it seems like they are, you know, any, any time now. Um, and yet we haven't seen a ton of those yet from the CIB. No, and the infrastructure um, bank has been, I would say, politically controversial is probably a fair way to put it. Well, yes. Yes. Um, and... They've had various levels of commitments that they've announced. Some of them are not quite as shovel-ready as I think the dream of the infrastructure bank was. I'm thinking of like a train line from Calgary to Banff. Um, Deer Park Express. strikes as weird, and I don't even think it's on the short list of uh, typical train lines that people talk about in Alberta. The main one being the replacement for the QE2 between Edmonton and uh, Calgary. Um but here we are. Um, so Sabia does his stint. A new president is appointed. It seemed like he was ready to settle back into the role of chair as the board and oversee sort of his his child. Um, instead, out of left field, he gets the appointment to deputy minister of finance. Yes, and it's worth saying that that we we alluded earlier that he had had a public sector career both recently and uh, in the eighties. Uh, at Privy Council office working for Paul Tellier. Uh, but he has not been in the public sector for any of the a intervening while. time, which is still, you know, the better part of 40 years at this point. Um, so some of some of his significant roles were under Mulroney. Um, yeah, well, that was the last time he was in it. government. In, in and around the GST. Yeah. Um, and then since then, he's gone on to, I mean, he most recently... He was CEO of Bell. He was at the Case de Depot. 
Casa Depot. Yeah. Um, Bell Cien, I want to say. Yes, Cien, Cien. He actually left with Atelier to join the yeah. executive team. Yeah, at the same time. So I don't. I I haven't done the math, but in terms of his recent career history, his his LinkedIn page certainly leans more towards. Well, and the the one we didn't mention is his uh, as director of the Monk School. Um, well, of Monk course, that, that's of the most critical one, of course. So, international affairs or global affairs or whatever it is at the University of Toronto. Um, it certainly leans heavily to the private sector, which that in and of itself makes him a very unusual pick for the DM level of the federal public service. Right, and I would imagine the, that because, uh, as as I said earlier, uh, the the Canadian public service is very much a place where you, you typically you make your career. Right, like it doesn't yes. do a lot of, of outside people parachuting into high level positions historically. Uh, like it, it happens; it's not unheard of, but it's certainly uncommon. And I believe this is the first time this has happened at a ministry like finance. Uh, I, uh, at least in some I, I, time, like yeah, I, I would hesitate to make that sure. Claim. Like Johnny so, like, McDonald, let, let I'm sure, like hired like. Some guy no. with like absurd sideburns who had made like you know a quarter quarter million dollars, which in that day's money was sixteen billion, uh, like so selling le- selling tangerines <laughs> okay. to friggin I don't know, like, some some appropriately absurd Ma- mandarins, nonsense. if you will. Indeed, yes. Um, let me take a step back from this and just talk about you know the history of the or how the civil service views outsiders broadly. Um, my starting point is, you know, it is not a bad idea to have fresh blood come in. Um, this government has seen a lot of provincial deputy ministers, uh, notable provincial deputy ministers, come in um, to the federal side and take up prominent roles. I can't think of a comparable deputy minister coming from the private sector. Someone who I'd sort of put in that bucket it would be someone like Matthew Mendelssohn. Um, who came into PCO to run the deliverology he, unit. I believe he had been in the Ontario government before that as well. He had, yeah. but he'd also sort of kicked around, and he was sort of seen as a, a political appointment. Um, so I think it is safe to say that Sabia should likewise be viewed as a political appointment to a yes. you know, top well, and three Mendel- deputy minister role. Yes, and Mendelssohn is, is worth saying too. rather like, unusual. It is. And Mendelssohn was brought in specifically on the deliverology file, which we've talked about before on the show. Um, and you know, that was certainly kind of a mixed bag. But I think what, what has in, it has in common with what Trudeau is perhaps hoping to accomplish Sabia is that it's a close personal priority of the prime minister. Which is to make the infrastructure bank a success or the infrastructure plan, and I would imagine the sort of medium-term recovery vision uh, success would be my my guess as to why this was why this warranted going outside the sort of traditional line of succession within uh, within government. And I, I don't necessarily have an answer, but I'm sure that we will see this, um, you know, as as a footnote in a political text about you know, Canadian public service governance. Um, or perhaps not, as our earlier point about transparency may may uh, lead you to believe. Well, no, uh, uh, ac- academics, <laughs> academics, they're they're around. The thing with they academics, I don't know where they're getting this stuff. Sometimes, you know, unless it's like about they, whether whether or not Sabia's appointment was seen as incredibly unusual by the public service, yeah. and whether or not it ruffled a lot of feathers internally, um, which I suspect it might. We will see. Um, he he's certainly not what I would describe as the safe choice in this instance. No, 
of not someone with recent roots in the department or you know in the government uh, directly. Well, the infrastructure <laughs> bank is quasi arm's length. Yes, and very um, and very consciously political, I think. Um, and he and even then he was on he was a board level position yeah. and you know all of these other things that really do make despite his initial um, public sector experience in the eighties of which he was in very prominent positions yes um, a assistant clerk or assistant secretary I think he was assistant or, clerk yeah um, very prominent high level PCO positions um, still rather unusual to see him well, take this and certainly role from the opposition party's point of view like as you said like seeing this as a political appointment like i think it perhaps would have been wise to have a deputy minister of finance about whom it could not be said he owed his job to being on good terms with justin trudeau um it just seems a little politically unwise given the context i think they would probably want to reinforce the the idea of stability also uh, but you know obviously they've chosen to go a different route and that's their prerogative as government but i think one thing that it's worth noting here too is sabia is uh a big personality uh i think it's fair yeah. to say from from what people have said about him uh which is going to be interesting because i don't know how he's going like you know they're adults but you know, the, the, rela- the working relationship supposed with, to have yeah, big like, personalities. Yes, like the working relationship with Freeland here, who is one of the more independent and powerful ministers in the government, is going to be interesting working with a, a hand-picked person from outside who has the confidence of the prime minister separately uh, and in a different context. May, and the thing is, is, we don't have a ton of insight into this. Maybe... She, she was like, I would, I would love it if, if Michael would come over here and just like, really run this ship, but we don't. Know. So I, I can see that being the case. I can see is, it too. I, yeah. I, I can see this is entirely speculation, um, but with what we know of Freeland, her experience at uh, the Financial Times, um, she was someone who made a lot of connections with the Michael Sabias of the world. Um, and still has them in her proverbial Rolodex um, and still leans on those relationships quite strongly. Yeah. So I can see her liking and preferring an outsider, yes. someone with private sector experience that she can message at two in the morning um, as opposed to a more conventional civil servant. Indeed. I, um, I think or it's the, the public or the the prime minister trying to reassert some control with someone that you know he trusts personally it, it could be what? either one of those it could be somewhere in the middle so who knows the, i'm sure the someone risk for me <laughs> comes from if sabia like this a, a you know a reason or a incredibly historic time in sort of the nation's finances and so picking an outsider who's not you know recently familiar with the machinery of government with the intricacies of the department he's been put in charge of um, is a very real risk. Um, and it's one clearly the government has accepted. Um, but we'll see how it pans out. I mean, it's easy to put numbers on paper of a budget and say this is what we're spending. But in terms of mechanically getting money out the door and you know, everything else, keeping the department working smoothly, um, that's where it gets a lot more complicated. Indeed. So I think that, that will sum up our, our HR roundup. Uh, for the week and you wanted to talk about a, a certain deadline that it has passed and we're now waiting on 
Can I just add, actually, I'm going to add one piece to that Michael Sabia. I, I really can't uh, stop you, so go ahead. To the, <laughs> Cut my <laughs> microphone. To the Michael Sabia conversation. is just uh, to step back and note the conversation about deputy ministers. Um, we have just spoken about, you know, the dynamics around a deputy minister as an important position in Ottawa for the past 15, 20 minutes. Um, deputy ministers are sort of an interesting paradox in that no one outside of Ottawa could tell you the name of a deputy minister. Um, but in Ottawa, they are in the top tier of important people. And there's really a disconnect between those two things. Deputy ministers are viewed as incredibly important, influential people. They're in Ottawa their entire careers. Um, they're like the, the guild the, navigators. Yeah, <laughs> very much so. <laughs> um, once you're at the ADM or the associate deputy minister level, like your career gets tracked around. And people are interested to see where you go and, you know, every move that you make in terms of following that career. Media only covers it incredibly superficially. Um, you know, there's some reporting on Sabia's role. He's a bit of uh, a different story. But otherwise, it's sort of a generic piece about there being a deputy minister shuffle, uh, shuffle that's on, like, page 250 of the Globe and Mail Saturday paper. Um, I haven't picked up a physical paper in a while. I don't know if there's 250 pages. There, anymore, I can assure or, you that or, there are not. Or if, or if <laughs> there ever was. Um, but there is a huge disconnect. And I think it's the first, or it's one of the points of shock for an outsider who sort of comes into the Ottawa bubble. Is it the public service Maybe, matters? Yeah, it's, it has its is, own motivation. the extent to which people culture. follow, map, pay attention yeah. to the public service and its personalities. And yes. The deputy ministers are at the top of that. Yeah, I think people say, oh, well, it's not political. And then they move on. But like every human institution is political. (laughs) Uh, So you need to know that's politics. Uh, And the fact that it is not a partisan uh, institution, well, not usually, uh, and that it doesn't have elections leads people to sort of put it aside. But yes, as Atana said, it it is a good institution to know its politics of Okay, and that takes us to uh, a quick discussion of uh, what we certainly thought a month ago would probably, or two months ago, however long ago it was, would probably lead to an election. Just, just over a month. A month, a month and a half ago. There you go. Let's call it. Uh, we, we thought it would lead to an election. It so far hasn't. And, and at this point, uh, let's say I would be surprised if it did, uh, was the opposition uh, motion at the health committee to ask for a whole bunch of documents related to pandemic response. Um was, we we recently were like, oh, what happened to that? And we checked uh, the old committee website was, where it was uh, an opposition day motion. But yes, you're right. Proceed. Yes, uh, where the uh, the committee had instructed the parliamentary law clerk to do its its magic uh, not very long ago. So that is presumably where those documents currently are. So uh, update on that when we get the documents, I guess. Yeah, I. I, yeah, I, I think it is going to prove to be a significant trove of documents in if the liberals hand it over or if the liberals refuse to hand it over. I think it creates a immense source of friction. Indeed. Um, but what's sort of stunning about it is it's completely fallen off the radar. Yes. Do we um, want to talk a little bit about why we thought that would lead to an election and perhaps I mean, why that was like two episodes ago well no but like i don't think we ever articulated rationale for why we were very very convinced for about 48 hours that there was going to be an imminent federal election 
That we, was... we were very wrong in public about something fairly consequential, so I at least want to revisit that a I, little bit. <laughs> I, I think your tweets were more at issue there than anything I said. We, we were of the same mind, um, I think it's fair to say. I'm, I, I can't even remember all the context around it. It feels like a lifetime ago. Yeah, that is fair. Um, yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. What was the... God, it's going to be hard to relitigate this mentally. So what happened was the morning that this Opposition Day motion uh, was put forward for debate, uh, a couple of ministers came out and said, if this motion passes, it will put at at risk the government's ability to secure PPE, vaccines, you know, whatever, unicorns, everything. Like, all of it's going to be on the chopping block because the opposition wanted to to play this game. The opposition went forward and, and passed uh the motion uh against the government and for that sort of 24 hours we figured the government had as good a pretext as any to call an election it, it kind of clearly wanted um it was also immediately after um it, yes the bc election in which horgan was returned with the majority government indeed um, as well as the track record of several other incumbent gov- governments being returned with majorities yes. and unpunished by triggering elections well, during their polling the was pandemic. Good. There, it seemed like there were a lot of very good reasons to roll the dice. And when your government, like, it's obviously better to roll the dice in a minority situation when it's the opposition's fault for having an election. And a calculation that Stephen Harper made several times and that worked out for him uh, every time he made it. So... Yeah, no, we really thought there that the incentives were perfectly aligned for an election. And I, I still think that our analysis was fundamentally reasonably solid. I mean, like, you know, just seen from like history and context that that was uh, a way it could go and that this was the best possible excuse they could have, especially because passing the motion, they could say, there's no way the public service can comply with this without putting the health of Canadians at risk. We need an election instead of the documents coming back in some way flawed or or redacted and the opposition having you know some kind of leg to stand on uh in terms of being able to say oh well the government's trying to keep secrets blah 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 it would have been the perfect time to do it um so i'm still a little surprised they didn't in some sense i suppose the timing would have coincided with an election through really um a worsening second wave in a way that was not really the case in any of the the sort of late summer elections that happened it wasn't as bad as it is now at the time. Yes. Um, but what I do think the flaw, perhaps, of our analysis, um, and I think this has been, you know, to some extent, my flaw um, it, at various points in my analysis of the liberal government has been overlooking their inability to make tough choices or gi- giving them too much credit for the ability to make tough choices. You know, when it came to, I, I'll happily admit, several mistakes I made, um, predicting that Morneau would be out of cabinet much earlier than he was, um, predicting that the cabinet shuffle in 2019 would be of a greater magnitude than it was. Um, yeah, the, the errors, the errors all go all in the side of, on a, yeah, on a government. <laughs> Going that is further. looking to be more ambitious in terms of correcting its previous mistakes um, than it ultimately has proven to be. And so I, I think had I been, you know, in PMO or Liberal Party HQ at the time, I likely would have been pushing for an election on 
the proof points that were before us um, based purely on an analysis, not a public health, but purely on an analysis of um, winnability of the election, putting, yeah. you know, my, my big capital G, capital T game theory hat on. Um, but that's not been the case. And no, and of, ha- of course I've, they I've did been have... wrong at several points because I think the government tends to demure when it comes to making hard choices. I, I think as well, they could have foreseen several political speed bumps that we did not. For instance, the, the last week's vaccine issue, I think, uh, is not one that we would have we would have been more aware of had we been in government with a sort of insight into how that process was unfolding, for instance. What what vaccine well, the, the, t- the timeline uh, on vaccines, which I think could have been a, a you know, if this were like week three of a, mm. of a four week election, could have been a, a reasonably big issue. I don't I don't know that I agree with you. There, well, I, I don't. That's the thing is like they would just have I think at some point when you have a lot more information, you do you do tend to some sort of analysis paralysis. So perhaps that does happen in government. I, I think if anything so i mean this is purely well within the realm of hypothetical but i think the public health argument is one of the strongest sticking points um in terms of the fate in favor of the liberals being reelected. that is not me saying that i think the liberals have done a terrific job it's saying that i think the public sentiment of canada is one that they consider the liberal that Canadians consider consider that the liberals have done a reasonably good job, and I think it's one where Canadians would hesitate to invite change in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. Um. So keeping keeping the same captain of the ship, uh, not changing horses midstream or whatever that expression is. Yes. Um. I I think very much holds true. I think that that would be a very strong argument in their favor. I do think that there's a certain amount of volatility built into a situation that is fairly unprecedented that is difficult to account for in in any particular direction which perhaps would have given me pause in in that situation so let's blend this a little bit into the conversation that i think was uh footnoted to happen next in terms of the vaccines so over the past what is it eight nine months of this i i've always been of the view that there are two primary um angles of attack um, from the opposition uh, against the government. One is the economic handling, um, and that has a sub-bullet of the recovery handling, Mm -hmm. um, and the other is the healthcare handling. And I always thought the government was potentially had greater uh, flank exposed on the healthcare handling questions from mass to rapid tests, um, things that we've covered in, you know, a reasonable amount of detail over the past months. Um, and the latest flank or the latest battle has been around vaccinations mm-hmm. and the rollout of vaccinations and where we are in line. And just to talk about that conversation for a moment, very early on, the government's rhetoric on this um, wasn't terrifically um, reassuring. When asked about vaccination preparedness, the government would always refer to like per capita numbers <laughs> of vaccines ordered, um, which like the economists gave them praise for. And, and others. as Jerry Butts said, plain lands isn't the story. But yeah, but like per capita over what period, when are we going to get them has, has long been sort of the response. And the government started to talk about some of those details. 
but never in a very clear way for sort of a casual or an even above average viewer. Um, it's sort of dribbled out in press conferences, out of technical briefings. There's never been sort of a decisive document put together that sort of outlines, you know, comparable to the UK or the uh, Australia, oh, yeah. that outlines what the expectations are, you know, that constitutes a document that is the cohesive plan that's going to be followed. Um, instead, like the Prime Minister's press conference today was at uh, was announcing the uh, Pfizer vaccines and the number of Pfizer vaccines that were gonna that Canada was going to receive in advance of uh, uh, December thirty first before the end of the month. Um, I don't remember the number two hundred some thousand two hundred fifty k. Um, yeah, and the the first question out of the gate was, how are those vaccines going to be distributed to the provinces? Who who is that going to go to? And that uh, friend of the show, Dylan Robertson, was the one asking that question. And then subsequent journalists had sort of follow-ups looking for more detail. And the government was referencing, well, you can, uh, the prioritization is going to be the vaccine roundtable people uh, or the immunization task force. It's going to be per capita. And, well, it'll be per capita is is ultimately what it is. Um, But they were pointing at the provincial roles and the immunization task force and all of these other, you know, data points that are sort of spread throughout the ecosystem. Yes. Rather than having like refer to our vaccine strategy. Yes. Rather than having a single tangible document that lays it all out. Yes. uh, Which I think has confused the reporting. It's confused casual observers. It's confused serious observers. It's confused media. Um, and I'm sure it makes sense (laughs) and I'm sure it makes sense to someone at the center who is fully briefed on all the different pieces of the puzzle and knows it all Um, but until then it sort of dribbles out via questions at Q&A's and pressers um, which doesn't seem like the best approach for perhaps what what is uh, you know an incredibly significant development for you know, the next steps of our nation's recovery from the global pandemic. Like, it, it just seems insane that there isn't a coherent uh, strategy document that everyone can be pointed to with, you know, the FAQs of how this is all going to go down. Yeah. And instead, we have to ask the PM in the allocated Q&A time to maybe give us hints. Like it, the transparency theme today coming through loud and clear. Yeah, it's uh, it, it just like there are things that we we accept as a country that other countries plainly do not really seem to. Yeah. Yeah. When it comes to public so, transparency. So just just to finish my uh, sort of the overarching analysis there, the question of vaccines uh, is obviously the next frontier in or the the next front. Um, in terms of the public health management question, uh, conservatives have been conservatives and other opposition have been working to make hay, questioning um, the strategy or the absence of strategy and all the rest of it. Which I, I think, to a large extent, the absence of strategy has been valid because there hasn't been a crystal clear document laying this laying this out. Um, and so the real question comes: How is Canada's vaccine rollout going to look? comparable to, not my preference, but the United States. Um, And if the United States is vaccinating millions of people, well, we're not. Um, That is going to be a huge political issue for the government. Yeah. Um, But if 
you know, it is a fairly comparable level of vaccination that's going on in Canada comparative to United Kingdom, Australia, United States. Um, there will be grumbling, the, but not then as, the government is yeah. going to be on very good footing yes. um, in in terms of riding it out. And it's going to be very, you know, incredibly difficult for the opposition to make hay about that when it's comparable. To date, there has certainly been daylight between what other countries have been doing and what our government has been doing. Um, but, you know, it's in the absence of information that a lot of those questions have cropped up. And so, you know, potentially we're incredibly well prepared, uh, better prepared than counterparts. We, we just don't really have a good sense of yes. what the picture so looks I, like. I will say that when, when the answer you get is the like four month old stock line of like, we have the most dose of security yeah. per capita of any bull. It's like you start to wonder like, OK, that means they don't have a better answer. <laughs> That's exactly it. Right. And that has to be your assumption is yes. like if you're pointing to the amount of orders you're ma- you've made. I have the most. PS5s which anyone with of, money of any... can make orders. <laughs> and you. Yeah. And like I have, I have most PS5s at the end. I have I have, I have over pre-ordered 100 on Xbox, <laughs> whatever the hell they're called now. Series um, X. But I, I, I don't have well, any actually, of them in hand. Again, I, I don't know I, when I'll I not, have any of them in hand. I not only have the most PS5s, I also have the most Series X. So I have, <laughs> I'm go. covered. I'm covered. I have both. But when when will you get them? I, when when then, will you, you get know, them? Well, let me, let me refer you back to I have the most. <laughs> and, and that's what's been frustrating about the government's answer on all of this stuff. And, you know, it, it comes back to sort of this fundamental issue where in government, the, the the tension between comms people and policy people, where for a long time, comms people have been trained to say as little as humanly possible um, and to basically never insert new information into the ecosystem mm-hmm. unless they see it as like being dramatically helpful, um, sort of a precautionary principle, if you will. <laughs> um, and it is incredibly unhelpful um frustrating and i think ultimately often detrimental to comms but comms is a a position in which people can do a very bad job at for a very long time um without the ramifications of it being noticed and and let's let's be realistic that doing this the other way where you give people fulsome answers etc blah 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 very high risk right and that's it's a risk reward calculation being made all the time and when you're you know the government of a g7 country uh, and the leader of a party, you, you want to make communications announcements on your terms and not the terms of a press secretary that's just trying to be helpful to a journalist, right? Like you, you want to control that flow of information. I'm not, I'm not like endorsing that as a, you know, as a, as a system of government, but from the, a point of view of when you're in that position, you want to look for ways to minimize risk and to give very brief answers to things that sort of serve to just hold you through a press conference serves that function. Yeah, and I mean, at the at the very micro level, um, if you look at the incentives of someone in the press secretary role, you get a question from a journalist at four o'clock, um, you know, three, four o'clock in the afternoon, um, you have to respond to that question an hour. Are you are the incentives in your favor of going to your policy person, you know, looking through the MC for parts that you can share, making sure everyone in the system is good with you sharing that information? Or is your incentive to say, ah, send them the lines from last week? And your yeah, and incentive got, is and to say... And you've got a million other things on your plate, too, to be fair. It's yeah, and your incentive is to say, send them the same shit we sent the other guy last week. Um, because, meh. What's the worst that can happen is they're going to bitch about it. 
Yeah, right? exactly. And they're going to bitch and about it anyway. So <laughs> The story will be written and, you know, and so on the Ottawa bubble media cycle goes. Yes. Um, but in instances like dealing with vaccination during a global pandemic, these are perhaps not the best comm strategies when the public is literally craving morsels of information. Yes. So all I have to say, there will be many books to write about this eventually looking forward to them you want to you want to team up on a book at some point we, we should it would be good like when we're like 80 years old and no one cares anymore look look for it now yeah self-published well you can pre-order or, or, you, or, can secure, sorry, you can secure the most the most doses of our of our book by sending us 20 dollars <laughs> in the mail <laughs> pre-orders on sale now exact same thing so what, we could tell you we could tell you how far along we are but that would put future publishing deals at risk so we can't you, you, you just gotta trust us all you just gotta trust us very pre-ordered we'll sign the pre-order it'll be it'll be beautiful the folks. most beautiful pre-order you've ever seen <laughs> uh i was gonna do a legislative update frankly i don't think we have the time i will just run through that there are two significant pieces of legislation that have been introduced since we last spoke uh, C12, an act respecting transparency and accountability in Canada's efforts to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions by the year 2050 with a short title, Canadian Net Zero Emissions Accountability Act, uh, which will have a plan to follow but acts as a framework piece of legislation for the government's net zero commitment, uh, saying that they have to table reports every year um, and creates a sort of advisory council. This is very much modeled on the 2008 Climate Change Act from the UK. Um Jack Layton has brought or has brought forward when he, when he was among us uh, to, to close that <laughs> circle um, <laughs> several pieces of legislation uh, to this effect. So very good uh, to the government to to catch up with, with that particularly good idea. Um, it, it is a good idea. It does seem to be the a dry accountability is the driver of emissions reductions in many senses. The, the both the Dutch and uh, the British have had good success and it is very rare that it will say a positive thing about the, the british government so <laughs> of any partisan stripe frankly so uh take that for for what it is uh c15 an act respecting the united nations declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples short title united nations declaration on the rights of indigenous peoples act uh incorporates the united nations declaration into canadian law and uh proposes an action plan to implement it uh within three years uh, they have three years to produce the plan, not to implement it within three years. Uh, once again, building on an NDP private member's bill from uh, last parliament, C-262, from Roby Saganash. Um, it has slight points of difference, but is largely very, very similar. So I, I congratulate the, the government for introducing two great pieces of NDP legislation uh, with uh, significant <laughs> caveats that I don't really have time to, uh, to get into at this point. Uh, but yes, bills will and be... And the last one, and the one that... You know, I, yes, there are two smaller, two smaller pieces of legislation. One implements the the small tax changes made in the um, uh, fall economic statement, including suspension of GST on uh, PPE, uh, as well as C thirteen. Again, the one you've been waiting for all episode: an act Woo! to amend the criminal code, single event sport betting, <laughs> which is a one page bill um, that, based purely on the title, I guess let's. Canadians bet on single sports, um, events. which single sports. Uh, sorry, events. Sing, so single sport betting, event. I guess. I don't really know anything about this. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I honestly can tell you, um, it's an amendment to the criminal code. The legislative summary is not out there. This very much is not my wheelhouse. 
here's to hoping it lets us now bet on uh you know twitch ml mlg video game league type things I'm all, I'm all here for it. Incredibly unusual bill to introduce um, and to suck up um, parliamentary time. Rather bewildered by the choice. Seems like something that they could shoehorn into a Budget Implementation Act or a BIA. Um, and no one would really care about or cry foul on. But uh, let's here we put are. It, let's put it this way. They've certainly made far more controversial changes within BIAs before. <laughs> Uh, Looking at you, SNC. Looking yeah, at you. The old, the old DPA, BIA, SNC, TLA, clusterfuck. I think uh, that's about it. Yeah, I would say for one is that we want to have an end of year episode devoted to the questions and and thoughts of our our most precious asset, you, the listener. <laughs> uh, so we want we want to have a reader mailbag episode uh, for the end of the year. Uh, partially because we will we will be just walking full of turkey and very tired and not not in the mood to think about things very hard. Um, so we definitely definitely want to just ha- have some nice emails, Twitter DMs, go through them, think about them, ruminate on air, get to share they our can, joy like a little stocking. So, like we're just opening Christmas presents. Let, let's put it this way: they can be political questions, they can be personal questions to an extent um they can be meta questions um you know and anything you want um if you don't submit questions i'm going to make up questions and pretend that you submitted them because you'll be none the wiser um so please don't make me do that yes um, laura you want to get you want to give the the fine folks yes. the email address that you just registered yes there are two places where you can send your reader questions one of them is at old old reliable twitter.com uh via via dms at short pants pod where you can also follow us and and you know sort of get get the latest thoughts from from our brains beamed directly to your eyes uh, or alternatively, you can send them via email at. I usually say at shortpantspod, but it actually that is the case here. It's at shortpantspod at gmail dot com. No, it's shortpantspod at gmail dot com. Well, yeah, but you can email them to us at shortpantspod at gmail dot com. Okay, the, the, the pause <laughs> the pause wasn't sufficiently long no. enough to be, for that to be comprehensible, or backbencherspod at gmail.com our old email address we made before we knew what the name of the show would, was going to be and we thought it was going to be something or the backbencherspod um, which why, why was did, why, did we, why did you introduce this this is only going to confuse well, you well no it's 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 meta history of the pod um, which was okay I, I will share this tidbit even though we're dramatically over time um, which was what we had originally um, registered as the pod name um, but decided against when it came to one of our first actions was going to be emailing an MP to ask if they would come into, on the pod. And we thought it might be offensive to uh, ask a backbench MP whether or not they'd want to come on the backbenchers pod. Um, and so instead we messaged Tony Clement over um, Snapchat and uh, Tony Clement agreed to come on the pod even though we never followed up with his office. <laughs> and then subsequently the changed the name of the pod. Perhaps for the best in the end. I like the name more now anyway. <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, here we are. Yes. Well, very good. Uh, just to reiterate that, you can you can email your questions to shortpantspod at gmail.com or send them via DM on twitter.com at shortpantspod. 
Or I'll, I'll open a third door. Uh, <laughs> Don't confuse them, people. <laughs> leave them in a review on iTunes or oh, that's actually fine. Your, yeah, you can do that. your podcast app of choice. That will work, though. If it's not on iTunes, honestly, there's no guarantee we're going to see it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going into the Podbean Podbean comments. Yeah, perhaps just email those to us anyway. (laughs) Yes. Very good. And duplicate and triplicate. We'll we'll, we'll get them. That will do it for us for this evening. I will just reiterate the periodic reminder that... we, this show is for entertainment purposes only and that neither of us should be interpreted as speaking for anybody but ourselves. <laughs> um, and that uh, we, we're not liable. You cannot sue us. Also. Thank, thank you for that legal disclaimer. And everything is alleged unless stated otherwise. Yes, and, but nothing ever is stated otherwise. It's all alleged. <laughs> uh yeah so that'll that'll do it for us thanks again for listening and uh if we, if we don't record an episode before the, the winter holidays enjoy your winter holiday of choice uh in this this very difficult year the choice will be staying home yes very good bye-bye bye-bye what was the of the show